All right, we're in a series on Ephesians. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up there to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the theme of Ephesians um, is that God has redeemed his people. Uh, sorry, I'm not getting connection here. It is on. Why don't you go manually advance and see if it'll do it. Okay, it's not working, so I'm just going to have to say next, all right? Um, God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. And that has been the theme that we've gone through. The first three chapters are really the doctrinal foundation, and the last three chapters are really how then it's lived out uh, within uh, our lives and communities. And, um, you know, this passage is historically uh, a difficult passage for many people to read. And as you look at it, I was, uh, Hunter Hamburg forwarded me a message and I listened to how one pastor uh, framed this message. And I thought he, he, he had a good practice and I want to encourage you to kind of look at it this way. He said, when I read scripture, do I pay attention to my own heart even before I enter the text? What in the text resonates with me? And what in the text draws up resistance from me? And this is one of those passages. You cannot read this text without having probably some form of resonance and some form of resistance to the text. And then he says, am I willing to surrender to the lordship of Christ? That really, these are not Jason's words. These are God's words, right? And uh, that, you know, we are being uh, moved along on a cultural uh, railroad tracks of a belief system. But really, God's word should override all of that. Right? And will we submit ourselves to uh, what the Word of God says? So, uh, verse 22, we will plunge in here. Um, wives submit to their own husbands. This is a trigger passage, right? What does it mean for a wife to submit? Are there areas where she should not submit to her husband? I've been around the church long enough that I've met women who hate this passage. And to tell you the truth, I've also met women who love this passage. Uh, I've met uh, women who say, I just want to get married. I'd gladly submit to a man who's a good man. Like, um, that, that's no issue with me, right? So there's people on all sides. But some people say this is oppressive. Some people say it takes the pressure off of them. Um, and I will say, most people don't want to preach on this passage. Uh, when Hunter put this out on the preaching team thread... Like it was his radio silent. Who's volunteering for the Ephesians 5 week? Like literally went two or three weeks and no one took it. Uh, but I am not afraid. But I might pay the price tomorrow. So we'll see. Uh, so I want to lay some groundwork at least because I think you can't walk into this without realizing this thing is loaded with cultural baggage. And we have to kind of examine that first. So before we dive in to the definitions, I want to like start walking through that. Issue number one is the cultural context of the first century was extremely oppressive to women. You have to know that when you're looking at this lens. Marriage in the first century was not about love, but it was about social status and economics. Uh, the saying goes, wives are for heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. Uh, divorce was only to be filed uh, by men. Women couldn't file. Fidelity was non-existent. Uh, women were less than in every single category. Uh, so this would be a shocking passage in the first century. 
In fact, from, from this past all the way down to when he talks about masters and slaves, children and parents, all that kind of stuff, how Paul lays this out was completely countercultural. First of all, nobody that was in the subservient position in the household code, codes was usually ever addressed by power. They were just, they were not even mentioned. And then the person in supposed power, they were never actually told to do anything to serve the people underneath them. So the very fact that Paul is saying to those in power, you need to change how you operate, and there's also then addressing the people who are being marginalized, that by itself was radically different. And then Paul always mentioned in the household colds the person who is subordinate first. So we should appreciate, first of all, I think the historic liberating nature of the gospel throughout the last 2,000 years in the world. But then I think second issue you have to grapple with is that discrimination against women is still a major problem around the world, in America, and in the Christian church, right? So if you're only looking at this from the, the um, enlightened Western elite lens, right, you got to look at this. This is the Bible for the globe. So I, I know there are a lot of websites out there that are counteracting any idea that women are still discriminated against, but just to like put this in perspective for you, let me just show these maps. So basically on these maps, green means pretty good, right? Red means pretty bad. So this is the world map. Uh, green is where women are, dark green is where women are physically secure. Where is that? There, it's nowhere. Red is women lack physical security. That's, that's the seven billion people on the planet. The practice of property rights for women. So green is they face no discrimination. Red is they face uh, significant discrimination. And yellow is some discrimination. So you're looking at 90% of the globe, uh, women don't have adequate and equal property rights. Governmental participation by women, right? I mean, look at our little friends over there in Russia, right? How they, how they view, I mean, that, that is a patriarchal, dominant nation, right? And then you look into the Middle East. Uh, the son preference, just look at this. Who would prefer a son over a daughter, right? 70% of the globe is still at a son preference, that, that a son is more valuable than a daughter. The trafficking of women. I mean, look at the red. Trafficking is not illegal and is commonly practiced in every red country. It is not illegal. The intermingling in public in the Islamic world. Women do not have freedom to move in public places in, uh, in, in especially the Islamic nations, right? This is oppressive to women. The comprehensive scale of rape. Dark green is where it's not a major problem. That men are using their power to physically dominate women across the globe. The governmental framework for gender equality. Dark green is there are strong policies across all three dimensions of law, action plans, and the UN declaration around gender equality. So, I just say this, that 
Discrimination is still a major problem in the world. It's not just a problem in the world, though. It's a problem in the Christian church. Um, our, our great evangelical radio teachers, theologians, have taught and kind of like gone along with the culture on this in some ways. James Dobson wrote in 1994 that men should be the sole breadwinners. <laughs> Val, that was awesome. Uh, I wish it were possible, he says, for me to emphasize just how critical this masculine understanding is to family stability. One of the greatest threats, listen to this, James Dobson said, the greatest threats to the institution of the family is the undermining of this role as protector and provider. This is the contribution, he says, for which men were designed. And if it's taken away, their commitment to their wives and children is jeopardized. So just think of like what he's saying and not saying, right? That men are to be the sole breadwinners. What does that do to women uh, who have a career calling? It's just by second nature discriminatory, right? In my own life, I was raised uh, by a father who wore the label of male chauvinist pig Proudly, He would tell us that he was that. I, I remember several times he would slam his fist on the table and say, no woman is going to r run my life. So the discrimination against women is in the world, it's in the church, uh, and it's in our own lives. If you want to hear about the Christian history of this, especially in the last 50 to 75 years, I commend the book to you, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. I read that this past year, and it was like reading my theological uh, history book. Uh, and it'll, it'll just shed light on this, that we basically, the church has adopted the Jane, John Wayne motif of how we handle manhood and womanhood within the church, you know? So, so we, have we must acknowledge that we've sinned as a church in making this uh, passage about what it's not, because by the fact that we have actually misinterpreted this passage, it has hurt women. It has robbed society of her power and influence. It has empowered bad men and has confused good men. Issue number three, the way this past has been taught in the contemporary church has actually just missed the point. <laughs> we have a problem. I started out my message with verse 22. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands. If you're paying attention... May I wish read the passage starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The framework of the entire household codes passage starts with mutual submission. <laughs> Men, you're quiet. Women are loud. Okay, so um, everybody listed in these passages is supposed to submit. Everyone in this passage is supposed to submit. Wives, husbands, masters, slaves, children, parents, everyone is to submit, it says. So why has the emphasis been off? Uh, see problem number two, <laughs> right? I mean, this is why this passage has been mistaught. So we have to then understand what mutual submission actually means. Uh, Beth Allison Barr, in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, talks about the, the roots of this. Uh, Paige Patterson was a Southern Baptist Seminary president. He pretty much led, uh, one of the key leaders to lead the conservative resurgence in the SBC. And his wife, Dorothy, stood on the floor of the 1998 Southern Baptist Convention 
to, quote, hold the line on women's submission. She argued against the phrase, listen, both husband and wife are to submit graciously to each other. Quotes, she argued against that phrase because it implied similarity and equality between husbands and wives. And she said that only women were called to submit graciously to the leadership of their husbands. So I just want to, like, context matters here. She's denying verse 21. How, how can you read verse 21 and have Mrs. Patterson stand up to the SBC, get them to pass resolutions on this issue? So the church has missed the point. The point of this passage is not women's submission. That's not the point. It, it is mutual submission. Number four, submission by itself is anti-American, but thoroughly Christ-like. <laughs> right? So, so if you are sitting here and the word submission alone triggers you, I hope by the end of today you can embrace that word. Because if you don't embrace that word, you're going to have a really hard time with Christianity. You really are. And I, and I, and I, I want to give you patience for that. But there are words that get hijacked that end up having cultural definitions that are not the true definition. So this is like the word modest. When I say the word modest, <laughs> Christy's laughing, like, what does that mean to you? Like, real practically, what does it mean for modesty? What kind of dress? Long dress down to the ground. Hemlines. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, in college it was lots loose and long. Do you know that has nothing to do with the word modest? Nothing to do with the word modest. Modest means simple. Modest does not mean not sexually. It has nothing to do with hemlines. It has nothing to do with tightness of clothing. It is basically saying, don't be ostentatious in your dress in the assembly, right? That word has been hijacked. Just, just, just look at evangelical literature and see when they say the word modest, what follows. It's not the meaning of the word. I was at a friend's church two weeks ago. I went uh, to visit a, went to do a car race with my son, and I went to my friend's church over the weekend. At the very end, they were giving their announcements, and there were men's and women's groups that were called conquest and purity groups. No, this is like two weeks ago in America. I don't even need to tell you which gender goes to which group, right? And I, sat, I, and I called Reverend and I said, I cannot believe you put that on that slide. Like, if I did that at Providence, like, I would run out the back door and, uh, and everybody would know it was a joke. Like, conquest and purity, like, the, just the idea of purity culture and what that has done and all that kind of stuff, like, why would you call the groups that? So uh, submission is kind of like that word, and I want to detox the word, it really means I resign myself to not having to get my own way. I resign myself to not having to get my own way. That's what submission is. Richard Foster said in Celebration of Discipline, the obsession to, man, to demand that things go the way we want them is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. Submission is actually a Christian virtue that is the answer to our problems as a culture, not the cause of them. You know, I, I oversee a staff of 55 people. They often say in CEO leadership training, like, the best, the most efficient form of governance is a benevolent dictator. And we all know it. 
You smile and say, do what I say. It's super efficient. <laughs> but it's not a great way to build a company, right? Teamwork, listening, supportive, right? Together we go. That, that's a way better way to go, and it's a slower way to go, right? But it, when, when leaders submit to their teams, right, everything works better. So I'm going to tell you this morning, all of y'all are going to have to submit by the time you walk out of here. And it's one of the best things for you to do. Uh, submit to government. Submit to your workplace. Submit to your church. Submit to one another. This is what God himself does in the Godhead every day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in mutual submission to one another. And I will say this to you men. If you see the cultural waters, there is a chance whereby you might be living your life not in submission in any sphere to a woman. Can I encourage you to voluntarily move into that? You know, seven of the last eight years on my job, my boss has been a woman. What a great, great learning experience for me. The mentor that I picked this year for my life is a woman, right? And I'm submitting myself to these women just almost as a spiritual practice, realizing I probably had this latent uh, bias from my background that I want to detox out of my life. I'm going to put myself underneath somebody. Isn't what this is the whole idea of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? All right, I'm 20 minutes in, and I just got done with context, so we're going to fly, all right? All right, so number one, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That is still there, and it's still God's words, and it's still the truth. It's saying this, submit as you do to the Lord, as you do to the Lord, as to the Lord, if you look to the household codes, codes here, which I'll finish up next week, it's mentioned 11 times in this passage. And it means to voluntarily accede to the subordinate position in a relationship. I like what Foster says in his book. In submission, we are learning to hold things lightly. We are learning to diligently watch over the spirit in which we hold others, honoring them, preferring them, loving them. The touchstone for the Christian understanding of submission is Jesus' astonishing statement, if anyone become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It does not mean the loss of our identity or our individuality. It means quite simply the freedom to give way to others. It means to hold the interests of others above our own. It means freedom from self-pity and self-absorption. So wise is simply saying this, the freedom to give way to others and to hold the interest of your husband above your own. You may not like that, but that's actually what the Bible says. That's what it actually means to submit, is I'm going to be in a relationship where I'm going to put the needs of my partner in front of my own. Now, what does it not mean? I want to be clear on that. It does not mean that, wives, you have to submit by order or decree. The husband should never utter the word. <laughs> if you're telling your wife to submit, you're doing it wrong. And if you haven't picked up on that, you got other problems, right? It is an action of her own free will. I have never used the word in 26 years, and I never will. I'm smart, right? <laughs> and in Christian teaching, it's like, who breaks the tie? In 26 years, we've never gone to the vote and had to break a tie. And guys, if you are really excited about breaking the tie, you realize you can win the vote and lose the entire nation, right? right? You, it's not about the trump card uh, or, or, or breaking the tie. 
It, it is simply, it is, it, you, you let the wife do this in the way that she wants to do it. It does not mean also, secondly, that you must submit to any other man. Did you hear that, ladies? You do not have to submit to any other man. If there is a man who is not your husband, who's giving any errors that you need to submit to him, run as fast as you can away from that man. He is unhealthy and he's wrong. Okay? He's wrong. Now, I had a, an African-American woman. She left our church about eight years ago. I'll never forget what she said. She goes, I need to go be pastored by a black pastor because you know what? You can't say the hard things to me. It was like a real good teaching to me that I, just as a white man, if I see cultural stuff, I still need to po poke at it. So I'm going to poke a little bit here. Um, to our Latino culture amongst us, you have a reputation around the world of this thing called machismo. That it is a behavior pattern in which Latino male exhibits an overbearing attitude to anyone in a position he perceives as inferior to his, demanding complete subservience. Okay? This is just so wrong and so ungodly. Danae, our interpreter this morning, uh, informed me of like this came from the when the colonizers came over and raped the women and impregnated them, that disempowered the men, but this whole picture of masculine dominance has been part of that culture ever since. I want to say to you men, I mean, I think in every culture there's probably is a flavor of machismo, right? You can go into areas of white culture and pick it up. You can pick it up in black culture. But men, if you have to go around and flex to get people to follow you, you're a small man. And they're not following you. They're just fearing you, right? And that, that is not love at all. So you don't have to submit to any other man. And I'm going to say this because in the Christian church, there has been teaching, and I'm going to give you some here by a theologian that many people respect, John Piper. This is what he says, just so you know. He actually believes, women, that you need to submit to men uh, outside of your marriage. He says, here's my conviction. To the degree that a woman's influence over a man, the guidance of a man or leadership of a man is personal and directive, it will generally offend a man's good, God-given sense of responsibility and leadership, and thus controvert God's created order. To an extent, a woman's leadership or influence may be personal and non-directive or directive and non-personal. I don't think those would necessarily push the limits of what's appropriate. That's my general paradigm of guidance. And you can see how flexible it is, how imprecise it is. So let me give some examples. A woman who's a civil engineer might design a traffic pattern in a city so she's deciding which streets are one way. And therefore, she's influencing, indeed controlling in one sense, all the male drivers all day long. I've never thought of that. Uh, <laughs> But this influence is so non-personal, it seems to me that the feminine-masculine dynamic is utterly negligible in this kind of relationship, you think? On the other hand, some influence is very directive for, and some is non-directive. For example, a drill sergeant might epitomize directive influence over the privates in the platoon. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant. Hut to right face, left faith, keep your mouth shut, private. Over men, listen, without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. All right, he's the one who says women should not be police officers for this very reason. Guys, that is just BS, right? Right? And John Piper is just flat wrong. It's nowhere in Scripture that women cannot exercise full authority over men uh, in this way. So you do not have to submit to any other man. And then, you, and then I also want to say this. You do not have to submit to an abusive man. One in three women have suffered abuse by an intimate partner. 
Women, if a man abuses you, he has surrendered his right to a relationship with you. And you have immediately been removed. Listen, women, you have been removed as the primary person to help him change. You are not the person who's going to go in and redeem this man and help him change. You are now going to let the community step in to help that man get the help that he needs. Remove yourself from the situation, right? You say, well, yeah, I mean, I mean there's, there's passages where pastors have taught, like, don't divorce a man like that. Jesus permitted divorce for jerks like that, right? Right? So run and don't violate the restraining order or nullify it, ladies. All right? This happens all the time in my counseling. You don't violate that until all of the counselors around you say it is okay. Male abuse in our culture is rampant. It is usually long periods of passivity interspersed with brief episodes of rage. You don't submit to that. You report it. Okay? All right. So it says submit, and it gives us a metaphor here of the head and the body. Now, there are... Um, this is the Greek word kephale. And there are different verses in the Bible that use that same word around what head means. Does it mean, uh, there's four basic different definitions of it. The first one is first in rank. I was reading this to my wife and she heard the first one. She goes, yep, that's not my favorite, you know. Um, it is headship as sustainer or source of growth or source of unity. All of those could fit into this passage, okay? The only one that's really ever been taught is the first in rank kind of idea. I like what John Stott says. It goes, if headship actually means power in any sense, it is the power to care, not to crush, the power to serve, not to dominate, the power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. So this is what headship means. But once again, that's not the point of this passage. This is husbands love your wives. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Why? You realize Paul spends twice as much text talking to husbands as he does to the wives. You know, what sermon have you heard where two, you know, two-thirds of what was given, right, was actually to the man? What Paul is describing here is a kingdom-defining, culture-defying, relational dynamic that was completely unknown to the first century Christian household. So the megaphone that you've heard in this passage is wives submit, but the true megaphone is husbands to love. This is how the husband is going to submit to his wife. Did you hear what I said? The husband is going to submit to the wife. You say, well, why hasn't this been taught? Because men have the mic most of the time, right? So husbands, love your wife. How do you say, as Christ loved the church? As Christ loved the church. Now, it says here these, these verses, husband, love your wife, just as Christ loved the church, verse 25. And I just got thinking, like, my wife, Jen, who, this is the first time I've seen her sit on the back row in church. Uh, <laughs> she knew the topic. <laughs> she texts me, says, I'm just sitting by Gina because she's my friend. So, <laughs> But I can imagine calling my wife into the room, into our living room, and saying, hey, babe, I've been really convicted about loving you. And... Um, the Bible says here, I want to make you holy by cleansing you by the washing with water through the word. Because I want to present you to myself and to Christ as a radiant woman, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. <laughs> I think I'd have two responses for my wife. A MacBook flying across the room in my head, 
or absolute hysterical laughter, right? <laughs> and I think no husband looks at this and goes, I, I, that ain't us, right? Um, that's not what you have to do. That's what Jesus does. <laughs> that's how Jesus loves his church, right? And he's giving us a picture of how deeply he loved. The paradigm for submission is Christ, and his action is not authority uh, over her, but salvation of her, of his church. It is a self-sacrificing love for the good of others. By the way, leadership is not mentioned here. Can I say that? Leadership is not mentioned in this passage. How did Christ love the church? I'm going to go through a couple ways. When I sit there and think of the gospel, and I want to kind of dive deep into this and give a different picture of what gospel love might look like in marriage. My wife and I have worked this out for 26 years. I'm going to give you some windows into how this works for us uh, because I am a huge fan of marriage. But when you have this type of mutual submission and gospel love energizing it, it is the richest experience um, that I know. How did God love us? He elected us. God chose us before the foundations of the world. That's his gospel love to us. What does that say to men? Choose her at the altar and then choose her every day. Choose her every single day. Most wives don't complain about dictatorial husbands. They complain about disinterested husbands who are choosing everything else besides them. So I asked Jen, I said, hey, Jen, um, in this area of choosing you, how do I choose you and how do I not choose you? I need to get a, become a better lover. She goes, you choose, you choose me by providing. You choose me by including me in your plans. And you choose me by keeping yourself fit. Uh, she said, the negative ways you don't choose me is you, don't have my, you, don't, you haven't chosen my movies yet. <laughs> I was like, I will die not being like Jesus because I'm not watching K-dramas. But she goes, uh, sometimes she goes, I want you to choose me, but you just keep going. Your battery pack's a little bit bigger than mine. And I wish you would choose me more sometimes than your work. The adopting love of God. The Bible says in Romans 8, 15, we've received this spirit of adoption. And in marriage, we're moving from an independent identity to a new and shared identity. And all that I have is hers. We form this new identity. Uh, and nothing, by the way, nobody should be more intimate with you men in your, in your world of friendships than your wife. Amen. You adopted her. Uh, you love her. And she is your number one confidant. The reconciling love. The Bible says we were enemies of the Lord, and now we were reconciled by his death. <laughs> My wife said to me, I'm way better at this, Jason, than you are, <laughs> uh, which is true. She said, but you know what? Um, My goal is to be the first to repent, the first to initiate restoration, and not wait for her to come to me. Sometimes my wife struggles, and it is, it is loving for me to not let her linger in a bad place. She said to me yesterday, although I am better than you at this, she said, you are usually eager to get reconciliation. You own your stuff. And she goes, but you also stop me when I'm not ready. This just happened two weeks ago. I said to her, I said, um, it was work-related. And I said, I just got to know that, you know, when, I, when we agree on something, I got to be able to trust that it's going to be done. And I can't trust right now. Oh, <laughs> you know, she has what I, I call the ostrich head, you know, like that, you know, like, 
you said trust? And I was like, no, no, small T trust, not big T trust. She says, no, you said trust? <laughs> I mean, I was on the rack, you know. But I was like, I think you're a little too spicy right now, you know. Um, well, let's have that conversation. And the next day she came back, and I apologized for saying the word trust. And that's a reconciling type of love. Then there's an atoning love. Mark 10, 45, he gave his life as a ransom. He took the wrath for our sin. He covered our liabilities and gave us his assets, his righteousness. This is submission for the husband. You submit to the will of your wife by laying down your life for her, protecting her in areas of her limitations. You cover for her when she's weak. You give her the best of you. Husbands, your wife suffers under the curse of Adam, just like we all do. So you must get in there and relieve the suffering you take the extra job. You get up in the middle of the night. If Adam was really loving his wife rightly, he would have said, I messed up. I didn't intervene. I knew better. God, please don't punish her. Punish me. Atone. Justifying love. Bible, this, this idea of justification is just as if I never sinned. You know, in other words, when there's sin in our past, it's never brought up again. My wife and I work on it. We never say the word never, every time, or always to each other. You always, you never, every time. We don't do that. Because it's not true, and it gives the other person no hope. Husbands, view her as the daughter of the king that she is, pure and righteous. And when she doesn't see it herself, you affirm it. Don't remind your wife of what she's not. Remind her of who she is. This is justifying gospel love. Regenerating love. Regeneration is the idea of giving new life. You don't control her. You empower her. You give life, energy to her. Jen says, you know, you have brought life to my life. I never would have traveled to the places we've gone to. Uh, you encourage me to live uh, a holy life and to pour into relationship. And you're not a needy person. And, and you're, you are a regenerating presence in my life. And I said, well, when am I not? She goes, well, sometimes you cut me off when I'm talking. You don't listen as deeply as you should. She goes, in our evening walks together, she goes, I can tell on the evening walks when you have an agenda you want to accomplish to talk about on that walk. And I don't like the agenda on the walk. <laughs> That's not life-giving to her. Sanctifying love. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we look at Jesus in that process we become more like him. So a sanctifying love for your wife is seeking and aiding her spiritual growth. You let her get time away with friends and with the Lord. I have, I have a dear and holy wife. Um, but she says, you are the one that confronts me more than anybody else because not a lot of people confront me. And she goes, but you also then give me the time to grow. And every, if any time I say I want to resource myself and it's going to cost time and money, you say go. Then a secure love. The Bible says we are sealed by Jesus to the day of redemption. And Jesus promises, I am with you always. That in a, a husband loving his wife never gives a hint of leaving. He is not unfaithful with his eyes or his body. And he constantly says to her, I will never abandon you. There aren't no threats. There are no control games. And security also, men, is also every woman and wife needs to know that she's meeting needs in your life that other women are not meeting, that no other women can meet. That provides her security. My wife says, hey, you have provided financially. You've provided a home. 
you've never given me a hint that there's another woman. Uh, she said, but sometimes she goes, I don't feel secure when I see you anxious. When you get anxious, I get insecure. I'm like, I have to work on my anxiety. You know, I want to provide this gospel, securing, sanctifying, regenerating, atoning love to Jen, this wonderful woman God has brought into my life. And then lastly, what does love look like? Not just as Christ loved the church, but as you love your own body, husbands. Husbands, how do you love your own body? Eat well. Sleep. Exercise. Oh, man, come on. You love your bodies, man. You're all quiet. You love it. Yeah, you're known for the lazy boy recliner. Come on, naps, like... Come on, men. All right, women, I'll let it go. How do men love their bodies? How do men love their bodies? How does your man love his body? <laughs> All you got to do, men, is go, what do I like? And that's how you love her. Right, you give you you pay attention to how much care you take for your own comfort, your own schedule, your own life, and then make sure that hey, you love her like your own body because you actually really are. The head and the body are connected. So, I want to ask you, men, in this submission of love to her, is your wife flourishing because of you or in spite of you? You ought to be the number one element of flourishing in her life. I heard this in, in a message I listened to by John Tyson. He says, I want to help my wife reach her redemptive potential. I love that. Jen, I want to love you to greatness. I think you have the potential to touch tens of thousands of people. And I want to be your number one empower. I really do. What a joy that would be in my life. How, let's help our wives reach the redemptive potential. This is completely different, I think, than how this narrative has played out in churches. So the point in this passage is not about leadership and hierarchy. It is, it is really not about who has power. It's really saying who is giving it up. Who's giving up their power? Jesus taught by washing the feet that the greatest person is one who uses their authority to build up people and esteem others more important than themselves. The point is not about leadership and hierarchy. The point is connectedness, the head and the body working together in harmony. This is why I, I counsel people who've been caught up in affairs. And, and usually the spouse says to me, I, I could sense that something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. You know, Paul calls marriage a mystery. Because we can actually mystically sense when the connection is broken between the head and the body working together in harmony. So the point is not about leadership and hierarchy. It is connectedness and mutuality. Mutuality. I think the first 10 years of my life, I failed in this area. I think I was working on the old paradigm, and it was a friend who came up to me and said, I don't know if you realize the wisdom of that woman sitting right next to you. And I think deep inside, I really didn't. So she was, she's grown up afraid to use her voice. Uh, and I made a switch 15 years ago. 
uh, and I was like, I, w- I want to have a different posture to my wife. And she's, she's actually a wiser person than me. So, so men and in, in, in to married couples, I really, in counseling, I actually don't really run into a lot of leadership and authority issues. I really run into the issue of a lack of love and mutual submission to one another. And I want to give husbands and wives a picture here, of to, a, 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 a picture to lose yourself in one for the sake of the other. That is marriage. Sitting in our midst today are Terry and Marsha Bratt, and they walked up and they said... Uh, I was glad to see them, and I told Marsha, I said, I'm preaching on wives submitting this morning, Marsha. And I said, I'm going to help straighten out all your problems. She goes, I only have one big, really tall problem. (laughs) They, this year, we married 50 years. 50 years. I want to give a picture, Terry and Marsha. Terry's been an elder here for years of a couple that has lived this out and been a picture for us. Uh, in our church. Mutual submission is the picture of a great marriage and a great church. And, and, and men, this is why you leave your mom and dad and go get married to a woman. That's what it says. You, you run into this, and we follow the pattern of our Lord Jesus. His submission was his greatness. He initially submitted to the Godhead and the eternal plan. Philippians 2 says, um, having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, he existed in the form of God. He did not, rec- he did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He submitted himself to the Godhead. Then he submitted himself to human limitations. He emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a bondservant and made in the likeness of men. And then he submitted himself to governmental authorities who were heathen and killed him. But he also submitted themselves to those that he led. We see him at the very last supper then washing the feet of the people around him. It wasn't who has the power, it's who's using their power to serve for the good of others. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit does work on the hearts of resistance to these thoughts, to the resonance in these thoughts, but overall we'd be a church submitted to a countercultural picture of marriage and the church of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, for the things you've taught me in the last several weeks studying this passage. Lord, may it trickle down into our marriages. Lord, I, I pray for a special grace of anybody in this room. The majority of our church are people who are not married. That if you place this burden on their heart, Lord, that, Lord, you would provide a spouse for them where they can live this out. And Lord, then pray for our marriages here, Lord, that all of us are struggling to figure out how to go against culture and do something radically different. So give us the grace to work this out with each other. I pray that the conversations that would happen with husbands and wives in the next week would be filled with grace, love, mutuality, and deeper intimacy. This would just be a a gift of your grace. We ask this in your name.